I think if you look at the pace of progress over the last couple of hundred years, the pace of technological progress at, at the frontier of, of new technologies being developed and deployed has slowed down somewhat in the last 50 years or so. Why are we seeing a relatively slower pace? I have three main hypotheses. One is the just growing layers of bureaucracy and regulation that we have accumulated over the last several decades, uh, largely, although not exclusively, in government. Two is the way that we have centralized and bureaucratized the funding mechanisms for science uh, and research. And three is the fundamental philosophic and cultural attitudes towards progress itself. Do people generally believe that progress is possible and desirable? I think in the long term, society gets what it values. And if we decide that progress is not such a great thing, we're going to get a lot less of it. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host, Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. This is the first episode of 2022, and we are quite excited to have in this chat Jason Crawford, Uh, who is the founder of The Roots of Progress, where he writes and speaks about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. It was really interesting to talk to Jason because I think he really opened our eyes to, to many of the, the assumptions and ideas that we have. One comment that he made uh, is that he doesn't feel fully uh, comfortable with the idea of a post-industrial society. And what we understood from him is that we still live in very industrial societies. So for him, uh, it's a bit puzzling to have this idea that we are actually in a post-industrial state. And a lot of his research is also exactly about what the industrial societies mean and how we understand progress and technology in, in this sense. So I thought that was quite interesting. Right, I, th- I think the, the 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 interesting an interesting part of the conversation we had is also to note that there is a kind of triangular uh, relationship between uh, narratives, uh, markets, and the idea of uh, progress and innovation. So he said during the conversation, he said uh, society gets what it asks for. And I think it was very interesting to connect it with this idea that the internet, uh, as this new medium, uh, uh, it's creating a multiplicity of narratives of progress, essentially, and it's making it increasingly easier to uh, create markets. And uh, uh, with the blockchain, maybe also, you know, more is, more kind kind of institutional agreements around, you know, some progress uh, objectives and innovations. So it's really interesting, I mean, how the, the dynamics of communication that we are developing uh, in this hyper-connected age are also somehow changing the idea of progress and innovation that we, as a society, as a plural society, are uh, looking for. So I, I think it's a, it's a fairly unusual uh, episode for our listeners uh, because we don't really speak strictly about organizing, but the implications of the theory of progress that Jason Uh, is you know bringing forth with this research uh, are dramatic, I think, for how we think about organizing in, in the 21st century. So I'm sure this is going to give a lot of uh, insights to our listeners. Yeah, and it's quite interesting to take that perspective of you know progress for what. And he's very focused on you know increased well-being, 
and using technology in a way that actually makes our lives better. And I think he has studied how that has happened in the past and, and somehow how this has maybe slowed down a bit recently. And, and how do we really look in, into uh, speeding it up again? And, you know, what are the next frontiers of, of progress and what does it even mean, in a, like you mentioned, in the multiple narrative kind of way? So please enjoy this episode. And of, as always, you can find all the relevant links and materials and transcript on our website. So boundaryless.io slash podcast slash JSON dash Crawford. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, we're back at the Boundless Conversations podcast uh, with you today. It's uh, me, Simone. Uh, like always, uh, with me, there is my usual co-host, Stina. Hello, everybody. And uh, we have uh, today with us, we have uh, Jason Crawford. Hello, Jason. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, that's great. Uh, Jason, uh, it's um, one of the you know, world-renowned uh, experts in the topic of progress, and we wanted really to have him uh, on board uh, to discuss, let's say, uh, something that uh, too often we give a little bit like for granted and we don't really discuss about and we don't uh, uh, strive to, uh, to, uh, to understand, you know, and where w- w- we should. Uh, so that's the topic of today. And of course, we're going to look into this uh, topic uh, from uh, an organizational perspective. That is our, you know, you know core as- aspect of conversation often in our, in our podcast. So, Jason, uh, maybe just before starting, um, I think, you know, we, we're not going to ask you to make a large, long intros, but I think it's a good idea to just give our listeners a couple of bits about what does it mean to study progress. So, so what, what is the, the work of your life, essentially, what your research topic, uh, uh, you know, if you can just give a, a quick introduction to the topic for our listeners. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll just explain what got me fascinated by the question and why I decided uh, to study it. If you just look back over the, the, the grand sweep of human history, one of the big facts that just jumps out at you is that uh, really for almost all of human history, just wealth and uh, quality of living was growing very slowly, if at all, until about 200 to 300 years ago, at which point uh, things really started taking off. In fact, if you look more broadly, say the last 500 years or something, we've actually had enormous amounts of progress in uh, technology, uh, industry, and living standards, in science, and just the growth of our knowledge, and um, even, you know, I would argue to to some extent in our, our moral and social systems. And this was after... Uh, again, you, you know, many thousands, tens of thousands of years, depending on how you count, of very little progress along those lines. This is the, in my opinion, the greatest thing ever to happen to humanity. Quality of life was actually quite terrible uh, for almost everyone just a few hundred years ago. And we, li- comparatively, we live in an amazing world uh, and we live very cushy lives. So if you look at that great fact of history and you care about human well being, I think you. I have to ask a few key questions. One, how did it happen? Two, why did it take so long? Uh, and three, how can we keep it going? That's what uh, that's what motivates me. That, that's great, uh, and also helps me to to connect with the first uh, 
let's say, area of conversation that we would like to have with you today that is around the industrial age. You know, that uh, uh, I understand from listening to some of your prior podcasts and in general reading some of your stuff that uh, some, somehow you identify as uh, the real accelerator of progress, you know, this idea of industrial age as uh, uh, you know, the moment where things really started to uh, accelerate faster and innovations uh, started to come up on a regular basis as not just once in a lifetime, let's say, no. So, so uh, the, the question that I would like to expre- expre- explore with you, it's really about you know what's happening to progress as we step into what we call a post-industrial society, you know, and uh, uh, what does it mean, for example, to innovate uh, in a world that is probably, first of all, a bit more uh, decentralized in terms of uh, the way that we recognize innovation uh, today. You know, often when we speak about ecosystems, uh, e- innovations are much less about uh, a clear, uh, great idea coming from the center, coming from the genius, coming from, I don't know, whatever we want to call it, but it's sometimes much more about, you know, personalization, it's much more about uh, local uh, optimal solutions that can be developed at the edge of the system. No? So, so first of all, the topic of decentralization, how do you see that happening? What are your feelings around this idea of moving past the industrial age in a more decentralized uh, and more post-industrial age? Yeah, it's funny. I've always found the term post-industrial to be a little odd um, because, of course, we are still well within the industrial age. Uh, industry has not gone away and it's not shrinking. Um, but if you, I guess if you approach it from the perspective of centralization and decentralization, then uh, yes, there are some ways in which there's definitely been decentralization in recent years and decades. And I, without having thought about it too deeply, off the top of my head, it seems to me that it's primarily from information technology. Okay, so if we so if we rewind the clock a little bit and go back to before the Industrial Revolution, there were few, if any, maybe really no very large uh, business organizations, and there was actually no real science or profession of management. The only thing that we had in terms of coordinating very large numbers of people uh, to do uh, some, you know, to accomplish some goal together uh, really was military. A breakthrough in this came with the railroads. So in the 1830s uh, began a, uh, a railway mania. There was a whole lot of railway building in the in the U.S. and the U.K. In particular, and then it spread to Europe and the rest of the world. And uh, the railroads were very large endeavors, uh, which raised very large amounts of capital. They actually really kind of pushed on the law and the corporate form. They pushed for uh, limited liability corporations and so forth. So they're raising uh, large amounts of money. They're also spread out over large distances in a way that you know many businesses were not. You know, previously you had far-flung trading ventures, right? Like you think of the the Dutch East India Company or the British East India Company or other trading corporations like that. I mean, those those corporations were uh, spread out throughout the world, but the the way they operated was through uh, you know managers in and agents in different locations who operated fairly autonomously. They had to because there was no instant communications. You know, the only way you could communicate was through letters that went on the very ships that were that were trading, and uh, took months and months to get from headquarters to some distant outpost. So now in the eighteen mid eighteen hundreds, you've got. These railroads, so not only do you have the railroads, which are these large organizations spread out over a large distance, 
but also around the same time you have the uh, you have the telegraph. Um, so the telegraph was in- invented sort of soon after the railways were uh, were really getting off the ground, and railroads were one of the first customers. Um, it was just so obviously useful to coordinate the operation of the railroad itself, right? To coordinate the trains, but then um, you know more broadly to coordinate the uh, the construction and and management of the whole system. When in the when the transcontinental railroad was built in the U.S. across some 2,000 miles of undeveloped wilderness, as they were building the railroad out over those thousands of miles, they built a telegraph right along with it. And so the folks who were at the end of the line constructing the line forward uh, could telegraph back to headquarters to order supplies or you know report on conditions or uh, ask for more labor or, or whatever it was. So the railroads really evolved uh, the first modern management. Uh, and so I think, you know, starting in that kind of late 1800s and in, certainly into the 20th century, uh, we did get the rise of sort of larger and maybe more centralized, more more top-down uh, management. And, and again, a lot of this is driven through information technology. Similarly, in politics, if you look at um, kind of what's going on in terms of the building of nation states and uh, politics becoming much more national, like a significant amount of that was because of um, broadcast technologies like radio and television. You know, FDR, uh, I mean, everybody from FDR to Hitler in the 30s was able to address the entire nation through the radio and give a speech to everybody at once, which simply hadn't been possible before. And so if we are now seeing some decentralization, uh, I think you know a, a large reason for it is because of changing information technology and especially the internet. The internet is this massive decentralizing, uh, democratizing force. Here's kind of how I think about it. Prior to the internet, we had the way to get the written word out was still essentially through the printing press, right? Through books and newspapers printed in ink on paper. That's an expensive proposition and requires a deep capital investment in uh, the printing presses and the distribution networks and so forth. And so when you have a lot of uh, investment into getting the written word out, you need editorial gatekeepers who are going to make wise decisions about what to do with that, you know, limited resource, right? With that, with that expensive resource, how to invest that. And so you have editors uh, acting as gatekeepers deciding what gets published uh, and who's good enough to publish and what writing is good enough to publish um, and so forth. And then the internet comes along and essentially takes cost of publishing to zero, certainly the marginal cost, right? And makes the infrastructure available to just about everybody. Well, now all of a sudden, no editor has to decide what gets published because everything can get published. But as soon as you do that, you're now in a, uh, you have have a new scarce resource. It's not uh, paper and ink. It's people's attention, right? There quickly becomes too much stuff on the internet for anyone to pay attention to. So now the question is, what are people going to read out of the you know infinite variety of, of words published online that people could read? Uh, and so for a while, I think the editors still had sort of power in directing people's attention, right? Maybe people were going to NewYorkTimes.com instead of you know picking up the physical paper, but it's still editors kind of directing their attention to what uh, they ought to read. Well, social media came along and and disintermediated uh, the the media companies, uh, and they essentially lost their direct relationship with their audience. Now they're getting an enormous amount of their traffic through social media. And so now you've got this world where basically anyone can become uh, an influencer, right? Anyone can build an audience uh, on social media. And so now you've got not only the sort of the the democratization of publishing, but also the democratization of, of audience building and attention directing. And what we are seeing just now in the last year or two is that 
the editor still held sway because if you wanted to be a full-time writer, it was hard to make a living in any way other than going and joining a media company and getting paid a salary out of the budgets that the editors would direct. Well, now we are starting to see writers go independent. Audiences are getting big enough, and the platforms and the tools are getting easy enough to use, uh, especially through uh, you know new tools called Substack, which makes it easy for people to create a paid newsletter. And so now, um, uh, you know, lots of writers are just going independent and finding that they can very easily make a living. Some of them making. Uh, you know, more than a good living, right? Making uh, on the order of a million dollars a year through, uh, you know, through their their audiences. So the media companies first lost their monopoly on publishing, then they lost their uh, direct relationship with their audience. Now they're even losing their writers. And so I think that's just a really stark example of how the internet acts as a decentralizing force. But I think more broadly, this can also apply to um, to businesses and organizations and management and so forth. But I, I've talked for long enough, so let me turn it back over to you. No, I mean, right. That's great. I mean, we we, we very quickly go to, to I think, a, a very essential point, you know, that is this inextricable relationship between the idea of progress and the narratives that we build around it. You know, so uh, you, you, you clearly identify communication and, you know, as an essential point, you know, when you speak about the printing press and the internet and so on. So I, I was talking with Sina in the background and, uh, you know, to some extent, maybe you started saying post-industrialization, you know, uh, like, you know, it's a bit of a naive idea, no? because we're still very much industrialized. But uh, it may be that the internet has changed the nature of innovation just because it has changed the nature of how we build narratives. And essentially, you know, what I'm talking about here is, uh, of course, we, we see more voices, more ideas around progress and innovation coming up, and probably now it's much more diverse and plural. You know? And this is something that was uh, identified by ph- philosophers long ago. You know? If we talk about, you know, if, if you look into the work, for example, of Deleuze and, and you know, how we're moving out of this idea of centralized societies. You know? But, but the, the idea that I think I want to bring back to you is more about capabilities. So what I'm talking what am I talking about? You know, of course we can decentralize narratives, we can create different ideas of progress, uh, but uh, in terms of capabilities, what are the organizational layers, what are the institutional layers you need to generate progress and to what extent are they possible to decentralize them? So what what I mean here is really to try to understand if industrialization and progress are a bit like too tight to imagine a progress that is similar to the progress we have in mind now in a really decentralized world, decentralized in terms of institutional building, not just narratives building. And so, so what, what are your thoughts around this? I don't know. I know the, the, the question is a bit, uh, it's a bit uh, fuzzy, but maybe, but uh, I, I hope you, you got my points. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. So let's talk about uh, how decentralization relates to progress. I do think that there are various ways in which technological and industrial progress itself is is getting decentralized. So for one thing, in various ways, it is, it's just much easier to find a market now for any new product. So, you know, talking about the gatekeepers, the editorial gatekeepers in publishing, well, there's something similar for, for new products, right? It used to be that if you wanted to sell a consumer product, you, uh, you know, it was a big break to get shelf space on one of the major, you know, in one of the major stores, right? Like to get Walmart to pick up your product, not only to pick it up, but to devote a significant amount of shelf space to it and display it nicely and uh, display it at eye height so people would see it and, you know, and so forth, right? 
now, just as on the internet, there's unlimited room for publishing ideas, on an online store, there is unlimited shelf space. And so a store like Amazon is no longer limited by shelf space. They don't have to make decisions about what gets sold. Anybody can sign up on Amazon and sell almost anything. Again, you know, the question is about attention. And so you can sell your stuff on Amazon, but maybe nobody will see it because it's in there with an almost infinite number of, of products. But then again, this comes back to the, uh, another way in which it is uh, innovation can be more decentralized is it's much easier for anyone now to build an audience. And having an audience online is just an extremely powerful thing uh, when if you want to, uh, if you want to promote any type of innovation or build any type of business or venture, um, having an audience gives you a marketing channel, gives you a recruiting channel. It just gives you some credibility. It gives you a way to reach out and ask for resources. And again, with social media and the ability to create a blog and and so forth, uh, and and to build an email list, you know, virtually anybody can do this. Of course, uh, another another thing that makes it easier to build a market now is that pretty much all markets are global, and so if you have a niche product. That only appeals to uh, some, you know, tens of thousands of people in the world, and you want to get it out there. You can now find those people easier than ever before, no matter where they may be, all throughout the world, scattered, you know, across different countries and continents and time zones. And so, the internet really uh, is the last step in a long process uh, of globalization, uh, making all markets global, which means there's there's more of a market for any niche product. You were also talking about maybe, you know, ideas and where do ideas come from? I think I definitely think that the open sort of nature of online communications makes it much easier for ideas to come from anywhere and to get attention. Uh, in the science world, for instance, maybe you have a scientific paper that uh, you know gets rejected by some of the top journals, but you can always throw it up online. And if it's good enough and remarkable enough, and you can get the right people to notice it and and pay attention to it and uh, mention it on their blogs or their on science Twitter or whatever, then you know maybe you can get attention for it, even if the the top journals didn't pick it up. Um, I mean, so those are just some examples in which I think you know innovation and progress are are becoming decentralized, and where again the the story of this is always sort of the fall of the gatekeepers. Right, they, there used to be these people who could sort of block ideas, and the more that we get open communications, the harder it is for people to block ideas, and the more ideas can just get out there and kind of live or die on their own. Super. I mean, uh, super interesting. I, I was talking with Sina, and, and then I'm going to hand over to her for some further questions. But I wanted to just double click on some ideas for our listeners. You know, from what you say, sometimes I feel like progress is something that we identify maybe more with this big jump that we we made in the last 200 years. And now, when I talk to you and we speak about decentralization, it seems like you're speaking more about innovation. So, so <clears throat> an idea that maybe is more around you know new products, new solutions, but in in a more general context that it doesn't it doesn't really change the frame. Let's say. And then probably I can imagine that if we, if we uh, look into the future, we can think of some kind of critical or more like kind of refusal of some aspects of too much technology, too much innovation, so too much progress uh, as a way to kind of bounce back into something more, you know, that is more, I, I don't know what to say, but more 
in in a more equilibrium, let's say, with with how we sh- we feel like we want to live, you know, through this building of these new narratives that are emerging that maybe are somehow also critical about some aspects of, you know, internet going everywhere in our lives and and you know kind of monopolizing our attention or gentrifying our cities and so on. But maybe this is something we can we can also come back to. And Stina, I don't know if you want to add some elements, uh, as you were saying. Uh, well, I was curious uh, to know more about your your thoughts, maybe on in your framing of progress. We've been talking about decentralization and how ideas and, and markets are more decentralized and democratized in a way because you can, you can reach people uh, through the internet and so on. So I'm curious to see from the production perspective, how do you see that unfolding? Like going from more this industrial perspective, uh, well, the industrial age, like we were saying. So even if we don't want to say post-industrial, but do, would you see uh, that tie into your kind of thinking around progress? Is it going to be more decentralized? Are people going to be able to produce things like energy locally or, or you know, basic goods that we need for to sustain our wealth and quality of living? Or would that be more like a regression in that sense? Yeah, I don't obviously see reasons why physical manufacturing or energy production would necessarily decentralize. You know, it's, it's sort of just fundamental economic reasons and engineering reasons why a, a particular technology might be more or less decentralized. One of the trends of, of information technology has been decentralizing, but one of the trends uh, of transportation technology has been globalizing. And actually, the information technology helps us globalize as well. Okay, look, today to transport any goods around the world is extremely cheap. Even for some of the cheapest goods, the transportation cost is only a small fraction or a small percentage of of the cost of the goods. And that is uh, unique in history. So for most of history, transportation was very expensive. You had, um, uh, especially over land uh, before the railroads, you had, you know, it was by cart and wagon, essentially. And because of this, uh, almost all markets were local. And foreign goods were, you know, very much a uh, a rare and expensive luxury. Now, you know, between cargo ships and freight trains and 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 air shipping and everything and 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 trucking, it's just so easy to move things around that you know, literally from materials to intermediate parts to an as final assembled good to final markets, you know, things might bounce around the world multiple times, going from location to location. So um, in that sense, we've actually had much more centralization, right? A lot of manufacturing has gotten centralized in China. A lot of other, you know, in- industries can sort of centralize in that way and in-, in places that are, you know, that, are- that make the most economic sense for them. So as long as it is easy to move things around, whether that's goods or energy or whatever, uh, that will be a force moving against you know, decentralization, right? Because that is a force saying, hey, this, this stuff doesn't have to get made near where it's used. It, it should just get made wherever it's cheapest to make it, and then we'll just send it everywhere. So um, no, I don't necessarily think uh, that we'll, we'll see local energy production or local food production. We might see those things, but if so, it, it won't be because of some inevitable decentralizing force that's part of progress. Right. Doesn't this imply that really energy becomes much cheaper than it is now. Because if I think about, um, let's say, all these externalities that are connected through global transport, essentially, you know, and that's probably the 
most uh, challenging aspect of the picture that you seem to be, you know, linking to. So when you say, you know, I don't see that uh, decentralizing, so my question would be, and, you know, what, what's your, your judgment, your com comment around what is happening in terms of supply chain disruptions or, uh, you know, the obvious uh, implications of fossil fuels and, you know, and climate change, uh, what, what do you, you know, and in general, if, if I look into the world now and I see how much, uh, to some extent, things are re-regionalizing, you know, in terms of uh, regional powers that are kind of uh, regaining much more important position in a multipolar world. So it seems like you, you're pointing out that, uh, you know, centraliz centralization and thus, I think, industrialization is going to play a, a role, uh, um, important role also in the coming future. How do you reconcile all these uh, externalities, implications, supply chain rigidities, and, and, and what the things that we are, everybody's talking about these days? So, I mean, regarding energy, I don't know exactly what the future is going to be, but I am hopeful that we will have a future of energy that is cheap, abundant, reliable, and clean, and that we won't have to compromise on, uh, on, on any of the above. I think if the way we deal with our energy challenges is by using less energy over time, uh, that is going to be a great tragedy because it means that we will be uh, a poorer world where we are accomplishing less and uh, overall. I think a, a world where we continue to make progress, continue to make people's lives better, continue to pull the world out of poverty, continue to increase quality of living for, for everybody, rich and poor alike, and continue to, to make innovations and, and bring new technologies into the world, that is going to be a world in which we use a lot more energy. So, you know, just bottom line, let's hope that we solve uh, those problems and let's work hard to solve those problems. As for the supply chain disruptions, I have not researched that deeply and I don't uh, really know what's going on there. The best explanation I've heard, the one that makes the most sense to me, is that over the last, I don't know how many decades, a lot of companies have been shedding assets and stripping away excess capacity, getting leaner, essentially, perhaps in an attempt to improve their return on equity. To improve return on equity, you know, you, you can either improve your return or you can, uh, you can either e increase your return or you can decrease the equity. And decreasing the equity means decreasing your capital investment. And so that means, uh, you know, get, getting rid of assets you don't seem to need. The problem with that is that if you have a you know once in a generation shock to the system, like the demand swings that we've seen around COVID, then you can suddenly find that your excess capacity is used up. That you have you don't have enough slack in the system, and it cannot absorb a, a, a demand shock or or whatever. And so now you have these uh, you have this very rigid system because you've you've taken all the slack out, and so now these shocks are just reverberating throughout the entire system. The global supply chain is basically you know, one enormous, very complex queuing theory problem. And I think that's what's going on here, that uh, you know, shipping companies, for instance, were reducing the amount of extra containers that they had on hand. Maybe the container yards were reducing the amount of extra capacity that they had. And you know, getting rid of extra capacity that you're not using looks really good in the short term. But then, uh, again, when you have a once-in-a-generation shock to the system, it's really bad because now you, you don't have the buffer you know, to absorb that shock and and so it does reverberate throughout the system that's the best explanation that i've heard for what's going on here so uh, a couple of uh, reflections on on um, 
this idea of measuring progress. And uh, I, I want to connect these also to this topic of decentralization and and uh, overcoming of, you know, maybe not of the industrial age, but of the bu- bureaucracy. Because, for example, you, you often refer to this idea that um, uh, there is a, some kind of safety theater happening, you know, where, where you have these regulators that uh, sometimes, you know, just for bureaucratic reasons, uh, impose, uh, you know, some kind of regulations that uh, don't really generate any positive outcome for society, but they just st- stand there, you know, and, and you know, kind of uh, slow down innovations uh, uh, because, uh, you know, somebody just put them there and nobody questions them. So that's one thing for sure. And I- I'm curious to know, you know, as the power in, in society goes more into the edges and, you know, we're probably going to see more co- institutional complexity coming from the edges. Now, for example, as we, from the edges, we're building finance, financial is- instruments and we are able to pull resources around local problems and we are able to decision to do much more decisions making. If I think about, for example, the role of the blockchain in enabling this uh, institutional abundance that we hopefully going to see at the edge of the system. And also how this connects with this idea of... Uh, uh, I would say, uh, Austrian economics, so where, where imp- entrepreneurs are much, and I know that you speak a lot about entrepreneurship as well, and, uh, you know, in, in a world where essentially money, for example, with cryptocurrencies is, is decentralized and, and it makes these new possibilities for, for a world where really we can organize at the edges uh, and create complex institutions at the edges. How is this also going to uh, help us, you know, overcome this you know, kind of slowing uh, impact that bureaucracy has had on progress uh, in the last uh, probably 30, 40 years. How do you see that uh, working? You know, you know the role of the entrepreneurs, uh, the new monetary systems that are emerging with crypto. Is it possible that this really generates a new age of progress just by, you know, making people more sovereign as well in terms of what kind of progress and, is, and innovation they want to see? So I'm very interested in the potential for cryptocurrencies to automate a lot of what is currently done uh, through in, in law and finance. The case that I would make for cryptocurrency being interesting and useful and, and deeply valuable over the long term is, uh, I think I'm stealing this phrase from Naval Ravikant, but basically it's programmable money. And so you've got the ability to automate a lot of things that are were sort of previously done through contracts, through legal documents, and through a financial system that is has really built up an enormous amount of bureaucracy and is sort of way behind way behind the times in many ways it's uh it's funny you would think that finance companies would be on the cutting edge of information technology because finance is such an information industry it's an industry that really is is all about information in in a certain sense and yet finance companies are some are often some of the most backwards uh, companies. I think, I mean, just look at security, for instance. I think the security that I have on my Facebook login is probably much better than the security that I have on my bank login, you know, online. I mean, in terms of in terms of security, the way we do payments today, it's almost the equivalent of giving your password to any merchant every time, right? I mean, it isn't literally a password, but it's your credit card number, right? Um, you, you just give this number to everybody anytime uh, they, they want to charge you money. Uh, that is an extremely insecure system. 
again, it's just the equivalent of sort of giving giving away your password or handing over your keys every single time. We have much better uh, fundamental technology than that. And again, you know, better technology is used if I want to if I want to sign in uh, using my Facebook login on some third party site. The technology to do that and the way that my login is protected is just is just way uh, more sophisticated and advanced than the technology that's used when I you know uh, hand over my credit card to a merchant. So we've got all of this kind of outdated infrastructure that's very slow to change, very resistant to change. On top of that, we've got an enormous amount of global legal bureaucracy that makes it very difficult for payments to move around the world. One of the things that made me start to realize the uh, potential for cryptocurrency to remake the financial system was when I started to realize how many walls and barriers are put up in between countries. It's easy. So, I mean, I live in an, in the USA uh, and it's very easy for me to pay, you know, for whatever I want online. Usually I'm ordering from a, a local American company. Even if I'm ordering overseas, usually they'll take my American credit card. But that is a, a very lucky position to be in. And, uh, you know, many folks in other countries, you know, if you live in I forget what I the the first time I heard about this it was Brazil or Venezuela or something like that and it was kind of like if you have a credit card from that company country you just can't almost buy anything anywhere outside your own country because nobody you know will take your card or there's some kind of restrictions in place. So uh, I do think there's uh, an enormous opportunity to remake uh, the global financial system and uh, and again to uh, I think what where cryptocurrency could get really interesting is if it starts to integrate with the legal code and with governments. So this is maybe a, a sort of uh, an unusual or a contrarian position. I'm not sure. I think uh, some people, the more techno-libertarians are hoping that cryptocurrency will be like an end run around the government. And to some extent, that may be possible in that we just kind of open up a clean field where, uh, you know, that's that is in the beginning unregulated. But uh, you know, I, I just think that anything that gets important, governments are not going to ignore. They're already uh, looking very closely at cryptocurrencies. Um, they know that they have to control money, and uh, as long as we have physical bodies and we and physical homes and we eat physical food, <laughs> we're always going to have this. You know, we, we're always going to exist in the world where governments can have control over us. At the end of the day, even if your if your uh, assets are in some digital form online, they can come to your house and they can throw you in jail, or they can of course. So um, I think that rather than uh, you know cryptocurrency being completely separate from governments, I think the really interesting thing will be when it integrates with government and law. Um, to give a couple of examples that have happened already in the U.S. in Delaware, the state of Delaware, which for, for those outside the U.S., uh, it turns out most U.S. corporations are incorporated in the state of Delaware, no matter where their headquarters happen to be. So Delaware's corporate law is more or less the corporate law for the for the nation. And uh, Delaware updated their corporate law a couple of years ago to explicitly allow for uh, shares, uh, shareholder records, essentially the the um, the records of who has how much stock, to be on uh, on a blockchain. Um, another similar example recently in Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming uh, has a way to now to integrate um, LLCs with DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations, and has said that essentially they will recognize DAOs as limited liability um, corporations. So I think uh, you know to the extent that we can do these things, we can start to automate the process of company formation uh, and perhaps the process and uh, you know take some of the process of company management and put it on the blockchain, such that records of 
of ownership and control can actually, you know, literally your the token that you own with your with your wallet, uh, crypto wallet is literally your owner, your legal ownership and control of um, of some asset. Uh, imagine if the deed to your house or the title to your car was an NFT. Uh, in other words, if the if the law recognized that whoever whatever uh, whatever person controls the wallet that owns this NFT is the legal owner of this house or car, that I think uh, that would be super interesting, and it would just open up all sorts of ability to apply code and algorithms to uh, to create all sorts of you know new kinds of markets. Yeah, no, I, I, it's very interesting now that we we started to talk about these kind of new shifting somehow the the narrative a bit or. or the seeing a sort of new window of uh, of things happening and i know that you have spoken a bit uh, previously about what's the sort of mindset that that we need and why has progress uh, slowed and can it be saved and so so maybe you could also uh, talk a little bit around those questions like uh, in this picture that you painted now what what is how do we make sure that progress doesn't stall and and how do you see that yeah, sure. Well, to to back up a little bit and look at the historical picture that even that motivates this, I think if you look at the pace of progress of the last couple of hundred years, the pace of technological progress at at the frontier of of new technologies being developed and deployed has slowed down somewhat in the last fifty years or so. Uh, certainly, it hasn't gone to zero uh, progress. We've had a lot of progress in the last 50 years, more so than at any time before the Industrial Revolution, but not as much, in my opinion, as we saw around the late 19th and early 20th century. In the last 50 years, we've really mostly seen progress in a, a single area, uh, which is mostly around information technology, computers and the internet. And we've seen relatively uh, less progress in areas like transportation, manufacturing, construction, or energy. Whereas if you look at that period around the late 19th to early 20th century, we were really seeing rapid progress in pretty much all of those areas uh, simultaneously. Um, we, we had uh, a breakthrough in communications technology with the telephone and the radio uh, that rivals, in my opinion, computers and the internet. And then on top of that, we had the entire electrical industry, the internal combustion engine, the automobile, the airplane, the first synthetic fertilizers, the first plastics, the first uh, vaccines in, in about 100 years. Um, etc. So there was really kind of progress going on across the board. Why is that not happening so much today? Why are we seeing a relatively slower pace? I have three main hypotheses, and these are not mutually exclusive. They work together. One is the just growing layers of bureaucracy and regulation that we have uh, that we have accumulated over the last several decades, uh, largely, although not exclusively, in in, in government. Two is the way that we have uh, centralized and bureaucratized the funding mechanisms for science uh, and research. And three is the fundamental philosophic and cultural attitudes towards progress itself. Do people generally believe that progress is possible and desirable? Uh, I think in the, the 20th century, we really saw a shift in people's attitudes. In the, in, in the mid to late 20th century, people got a lot more fearful and distrustful and skeptical of the very idea of progress. And I think in the long term, society gets what it values. And if we decide that progress is not such a great thing, we're going to get a lot less of it. So, so I was wondering, you know, in, in this process, so as we spoke about essentially, for example, potential to de decentralize finance and legal, you spoke about that. And you said, you know, for example, also energy, 
is uh, um, possibly going to be decentralized and, and ideally abundant. I was talking. I was thinking that also if we look through the um, lenses of uh, circular economy, resources can also be managed in a much more decentralized way and sustainable way. Uh, so at the end of the day, it seems like you know, kind of people are are now kind of entitled and have the res- responsibility to define what progress means for them and be much more active into making progress innovation happen. So I'm curious to know if you you know what is your what thoughts in terms of what are your thoughts in terms of uh, uh, how the, the future of uh, progress uh, in terms of, as a concept, you know, how people will recognize themselves into pro- pro- progress in terms of, for example, other you know different ways to look at growth or GDP. H- how do you feel this is going to unfold? You know, this idea of progress. How is going to be? How is going to become plural? What are the new dimensions that you see emerging and that, and that you know you are integrating also in your idea of of progress as you're writing your book and, and looking into the future. And probably that's the last question that we wanted to ask you to uh, to explore. I don't think anything is fundamentally changing about the nature of progress as such. Uh, progress is still, in essence, what it always has been. It's applying our intelligence to make our lives better, to allow us to live longer, happier, healthier lives of more thriving and f- flourishing, uh, and more opportunities, more choices uh, to to make our lives what we want. I do think that uh, you know, perhaps in the in the earliest days of um, of the industrial revolution, a lot of progress was just about satisfying basic needs. Agriculture improved such that uh, you know we didn't need half the workforce to be farmers just to feed uh, the population. Spinning and weaving improved so that only us, you know, just a small percentage of people could now make clothes for everyone. And so forth, right? So now we've gotten a lot of our basic needs taken care of. Uh, I think there's still a lot farther that you know that we can go along the lines of material comforts. But I also think that the more progress you know advances, the more we are able to satisfy more of our needs, including our you know intellectual and emotional and spiritual needs. And material progress does go hand in hand with satisfying those non-material needs as well. Especially again, I mean, we're living in an information age. The internet has given us uh, enormous opportunities, has given every individual enormous opportunities for learning uh, and knowledge. Pretty much all the knowledge of the world uh, almost is online, is accessible. You can teach yourself pretty much any subject, and most of it is out there for free in some form. It also offers enormous opportunities for cultural enrichment, right? Pretty much all of the art and music and literature and philosophy of the world is out there for almost anyone to access. Uh, you know, it used to be that you had to go to a museum or or go to a concert or uh, go to a library, etc. And maybe you didn't have one of those things nearby you, uh, especially if you lived in a, a poorer region of the world. But now, you know, so much of this stuff is just is just online and accessible. So maybe, you know, maybe a spiritual life to you uh, uh, or an emotional life means keeping in touch with friends and family. Well, now you can keep in touch with friends and family, you know, anywhere in the world and you can have live video conversations with them. And it's easier than ever before to go, you know, travel and, and visit them as well. 
um, you know, modulo uh, travel restrictions uh, that have been placed. So, uh, you know, modern modern technology and the, pro- the the material progress that we've made has really enabled us to live, I think, richer intellectual and emotional and and spiritual lives. And so, I think as progress continues, we'll we'll be continuing along those lines as well. Yeah, I think we're already we're already saying that how we after two hour two years of pandemic uh, we're really looking at things differently and how we relate with each other differently online. I think that's a great point. And uh, I, I mean, I also you know just as a way to double click on some of these uh, insights that we spoke about today, I think uh, your points really helped us to you know to not be naive in terms of uh, uh, kind of uh, envisioning too much uh, transformation too much uh, uh, yeah i would say going to 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 be too much beyond the idea of progress and innovation that we have in a world that you know goes towards more decentralization more participation more entrepreneurship less uh, bureaucracy probably hopefully and uh, to some extent i mean this uh, health resonates with this idea that i'm i'm you know i'm quoting from uh, a recent uh, a recent um, a podcast i was listening somebody quoted uh, uh, frederick von hayek saying i'm more cons- I-, I used to be concerned about the problems and now i'm concerned with the solutions which is a, a way to you know call uh, the risk of uh, centralized bureaucracies to you know impose solutions and impose visions on everybody yeah. and to some extent uh, it's great that we can look into a few where we can be more, I mean, we can be at the same time more uh, part of, uh, of the idea of progress that we build, but we also have to take some responsibilities on building this uh, complexity of institutions and processes and, and elements and layers that we need. You know, you spoke about legal, tech, and uh, finance. We spoke about energy and much more, but we have to build them. Otherwise, we, we won't have the possibility to uh, collectively define in a plural way what progress means for our communities, for our for our landscapes, for our for our states, for, for our yeah, you know, for our context in the end of the day. So so Jason, it was a great conversation. Anything that you want to share uh, with our uh, readers uh, about your upcoming ideas, what's you uh, what are you excited about or, or you know how to stay in touch with your research? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can find all of my writing and speaking online at rootsofprogress.org, and you can subscribe via email or follow us uh, on social media. Uh, I am pretty active on Twitter as well, and you can find me there. My handle is just my full name, Jason Crawford. Thank you so much. Sina, do you want to add uh, something more? No, I thank you. Thank you for the conversation. I think it, it gave us a lot of lot to think about. And I think what I really appreciate is that your your research is so it's rough. You know, you've got really looking at the evidence of how things have right. taken place. I think it's really helpful to, like Simone was mentioning, not get carried away about something that might not be as sort of a significant trend as one might think in the first place. Thank you so much, uh, both of you and to our listeners. Uh, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundless.io for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound 
for the ad hoc music. <laughs> 